It is great to see you all this morning. So we start today with a question. How are spiritual giants made? How are spiritual giants made? When you read the stories of Jesus' disciples, of Christian martyrs and early church fathers, when you read about the Protestant reformers and the people that God has used to shape culture and to develop the kingdom of God around the world, the question is, how did God develop them spiritually? How do they go from people who are lost, rebellious against God, to those who are saved and mature in Christ? What does that process actually look like? So in the U.S., churches tend to view Christian maturity as the byproduct of attending services and doing Bible studies, serving in the church, and being a Christian for a significant period of time. The idea is the more you do those things and the longer you do those things, the more mature you really are. So let's play the what-if game for just a moment. What if our current model for Christian maturity was never what God designed? What if our current model for Christian maturity is producing educated believers, not mature disciples? What if the biblical model for maturity actually follows a completely different path? Now, just to be clear, there's absolutely nothing wrong with any of the things I just mentioned. Nothing wrong with attending church services, going to Bible studies, serving in the church. In fact, I believe all of those are good and all of those are beneficial. And God uses all of those in a way in which to bring maturity. So that's, that's not the question that I'm dealing with here. But a piece that I try to point out as much as I can is an unbeliever can do all of those things. An unbeliever can attend church. An unbeliever can go to Bible studies. An unbeliever can serve. And the longer they do those things, it doesn't make them more of a believer. The issue is intimacy with God. The issue comes back to disciplines of the faith that are submitted to and empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. We find in Philippians 1.6, it tells us that he who began a good work in us is the one who's going to complete it. In 2 Thessalonians 2.13, it describes sanctification as the work of the Holy Spirit. So our outward actions are only as good as they are directed by and empowered by the Holy Spirit who indwells us. So I want us to camp out in that area for just a moment. So we would agree as believers, followers of Christ, that the Holy Spirit transforms our character as we abide in Christ. Amen? Amen? Okay. Holy Spirit is doing the work. That is the empowerment that is necessary for spiritual maturity. So for the person who is abiding in Christ, they're submitting to the Holy Spirit, God uses the spiritual disciplines, those things of prayer and study and time in solitude and meditation on the word and in community with other believers. He uses those to focus our efforts and to renew our mind in truth, to direct our obedience 
and to keep the three key relationships of life in proper tension. That is our relationship with God, our relationship with the church, and our relationship with the world, okay? So we have that, and that is the behaviors of spiritual maturity. Now, for the person who is abiding in Christ, submitted to the Holy Spirit, who is practicing the disciplines of the faith under God's power, God then uses the trials and the challenges of life to remove the remnants of the flesh while developing their character into the character of Christ. That's the context of spiritual growth. You have all three parts. Spiritual maturity involves empowerment, behaviors, and context. Now, here's why this is so important. If you remove empowerment, then you're trying to accomplish in your ability what only the Holy Spirit can do. If you remove behaviors, then you don't know what to do or when to do it or how it needs to be done. If you also remove context, then we literally can be running from the very set of circumstances designed in order to activate our growth. We need all three parts. We need empowerment. We need behaviors. We need context. Here's why that is so important for us this morning. Spiritual maturity requires all three, and yet the Church of America has primarily focused on behaviors as the primary means of spiritual growth, while at the same time not relying on the Holy Spirit's and while running from the very trials that activate that growth. Today, I'm going to do everything in my power, everything I can under the inspiration of the Spirit of God to encourage everyone in this room, do not run from the trials that God has in your life. Do not run. And by the way, you might say, I don't have a big trial in my life. Trials do not have to be big to be trials. If you remember our basic definition, trials are simply those things that are trying, are testing, are proving, are tempting. Also, those things that are challenging. It doesn't have to be big to be a trial. But listen, even the small ones can prove what's really on the inside. Let them do their work. I invite you, go with me in your Bibles today to the book of James, chapter number 1. James 1, we're still in verses 2 through 4. I'm speaking this morning on the subject of trials and maturity. Trials and maturity. I, I want you to know by the time we finish, there is purpose in the pain. There's purpose. God has a reason. He's got a design. It is not an accident. There is purpose in the pain. Read with me verses 2 through 4. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may your spirit guide us into truth again this morning. God, would you so personalize this message that everyone who is listening will know exactly how it fits into their life. In Jesus' name, amen. If you happen to have a life application study Bible, 
and you were to turn to the very beginning of the book of James, it gives this introductory section about the book, and I'm just going to read it to you. It says, we are inundated with a flood of extravagant claims as we flip the television channels or magazine pages. We are assured that these products are new, improved, fantastic, and will change lives. Christians also make great claims and are often guilty of belying them with their actions. Professing to trust God and to be his people, they cling tightly to the world and its values. Professing the right answers, they contradict the gospel with their lives. With energetic style, James confronts the unethical practices of his readers head on. Christianity must not only be believed, it must be lived. End of quotes fantastic statement. It is how we live the Christian life that is the conversation of spiritual maturity. When a person believes the right things and they respond in the right way at the right time, that is a step of maturity. Now for the church to move towards spiritual maturity, we have to expose we have to move away from four of the great myths surrounding spiritual maturity that are prevalent within the church to this day. And by the way, you all please know when I say it's prevalent in the church and prevalent within the church in America, I am talking about the trends that we see in churches regardless of the church, regardless of the denomination, but it does seem to be very uniquely positioned here in the U.S., and I believe there's reasons why it is positioned that way within the U.S. But here's four of those myths that we have to expose and move away from. First, we mistake Christian education for spiritual maturity. Education alone does not transform lives. In fact, the Bible says knowledge puffs up with pride. Somebody knowing the right answer does not necessarily mean that they are spiritually mature. Second, we underestimate the role of the Holy Spirit and overestimate our own role in the process. Either through eagerness to grow or ignorance of God's plan, we try to form our own concoction of spiritual ideas in order to become spiritually mature. So we kind of put in what we think is going to be good or maybe what those who have gone before us say, this will be a good piece for your life. And maybe that's some Bible study, prayer, a little bit of church attendance, a, a well-chosen mission trip, and voila, we're going to be spiritually mature on the other side. But listen, we underestimate the role of the Holy Spirit in the process. All throughout the New Testament, it is the Spirit who began the work and completes the work. It is Jesus who saves. It is the Spirit who sanctifies. Over and over again, it is the Spirit of God who is driving the process of sanctification. Number three, we view trials as distractions to our life when God views trials as the main event for our maturity. Trials create need. Oh, let me just hang out there for just a moment. Very little of significance changes apart from deep need. Need is a great motivator. Let me give an example of this. You could have somebody who has 
been trying in their own strength to stop smoking over the years. And they're just going at it, and they got them a patch this week, and they got them some gum next week, and they're cold turkey in the next week, and they just keep doing the same thing over and over. But if it is a lady and she gets pregnant, watch what happens. There is a new motivating force that has need that almost instantly a discipline can begin. There is something about need that is crucial. Think about how it is our children mature and grow. Think of how it is that we were willing to listen to God on those hard parts of life. It's when God backed us into a corner with absolute desperate need that we finally said, I surrender, I submit, I understand. Need is a great motivator. Here's the reason I bring that up. We view trials as distractions. And God's like, that is the means of your growth. Without a biblical understanding of God's plan in trials, we will run from the very circumstances that he is sending to answer our deepest prayers. God, make me like Christ. God, mature me in my faith. God, would you help me to have a stronger faith and a stronger knowledge and to know you more? And God creates the circumstances, and when he does, we're like, no. We're like, God, why did you do this to me? I wonder how many times he's like, I am answering your prayers. I'm giving you exactly what you wanted, just not in the packaging you were looking for. Number four. We equate years as a Christian with maturity as a Christian. Maturity is not measured by how long we've known Jesus. Maturity is measured by how much our life resembles his. Some believers will go through 20 years of trials and they gain 20 years of maturity. Other believers will go through 20 years of trials and they gain one year of maturity 20 times. They don't learn. They don't submit. They don't trust. They just keep kicking and scratching the whole way through. They don't submit to the process. There is a difference between how long a person has claimed to know Christ and how mature they are in Christ. All of these misconceptions will keep believers in a state of spiritual immaturity. That all leads into our big truth for this morning. Spiritual maturity requires a submissive cooperation with the Holy Spirit's work in the context of trials. It requires a submissive cooperation. We're going to pull this piece out throughout the rest of the message. Now, the first thing I want you to notice is where this particular subject fits into our study of these three verses. We began in week number one, and we talked about trials and perspective, and we answered the question, how should we think in the trials? Then on week two, we focused on trials and faith, and we answered the question, what is actually being tested in the trials? And today, it's on trials and maturity, and we're answering the question, what's the purpose why are we going through this? Why is God allowing it to happen in our lives? Now, this is a little bit of a, I don't know, a killer of the end of the message, but I'm going to go ahead and tell you right up front. Here, here's the purpose. He's using the trials to develop our faith. It's a part of the maturity process. Everything you're going through 
is a part of how God uses the circumstances of life so that all things work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Romans chapter 8, verse 29, it says, For those he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Part of God's greater plan, his design, is that our character, our lives, resemble the life of Christ. He wants it to be that our character is the character of Christ. Our passions are the passions of Christ. Our mission is the mission of Christ. He, he wants it to be that it's Christ living his life through us. Now the question becomes, how does that actually happen? How do you go from a person who is lost without hope, rebelling at every step against God, to a person who it's Christ's character and Christ's mission and Christ's passion being displayed in all avenues? How do you go from there to here? That's what James is all about. He contrasts these two lives. That is, we find that there are those who are perfect and complete, Lacking in nothing, verse number four. They are spiritually mature believers. And then he also says, there are those who are tossed by the wind, double-minded and unstable in all their ways, verses six and seven. They are spiritually immature believers. Now listen to this. According to verse two, God's path for maturity is trials. According to verse five, God's answer for immaturity is wisdom. Now notice how this fits. Those who understand what God is doing in the trials, those who submit their lives, they, they submit their hearts, they submit everything before God, for that individual, they recognize God is using this to develop their faith and to mature their character. For that person, they can look at those trials and they can what did James say? Count it all joy. That's a spiritually mature believer. But for those that are still kicking and screaming, for those who are wrestling to figure it out, for those who keep pushing the trials away, here's what he says. You need wisdom. You need to ask God for wisdom. Wisdom is what allows us to see things from God's perspective. Wisdom helps us skillfully navigate the difficulty and the hardships of life. Wisdom helps us to know what to do and when to do it and how it needs to be done. Wisdom is what reminds us that momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Wisdom helps on that. This entire section is about helping a person transition from spiritual immaturity to spiritual maturity. It's about helping somebody live an undivided life where what we believe is also what we live. It's our behaviors. There's no division between the two. So here's our big truth again. Spiritual maturity requires a submissive cooperation with the Holy Spirit's work in the context of trials. So now let's pull that out for a little bit. We saw this last week that trials test our faith and they produce endurance. Or another word that's often used there is patience. So if I say endurance, patience, perseverance, same basic word. Okay, we saw that the trial is primarily about faith. It's not primarily about our discipline. It's not primarily about our knowledge. Not primarily about our IQ. It's primarily about our faith. Now, it doesn't mean we're not going to learn other things, but that's not the primary test that's happening. It is the testing of your faith that produces endurance. 
Now, according to the text, faith that is being tested is going to give you three different things. It's going to be experiential knowledge. We covered that. Insight into the validity of your faith. We covered that. And also endurance or patience. That's what we covered last week, what we get into more this week. So now in verse number four, here's what it says. And let endurance have its perfect result. This word endurance or patience, it's, it's not a passive compliance to circumstances. It's an active one. It's not a resignation to just sit idly and do nothing, but it is a courageous perseverance to continue in the face of suffering and difficulty. So over in Romans chapter 5, verse 3, the apostle Paul spoke of trials producing endurance and endurance leading to maturity and hope. Listen to this sequence. He said, we also glory in tribulations. Are you glorying in your tribulations? Honestly, I don't. Please hear me when I say, when I'm preaching this to you, it's because God's been working it over in my heart the entire time as well. This is, this is not truth it has to be truth because the person preaching it is living it 100%. It's truth because it's God's word. On this side of eternity, we all have struggles in this. There's times, times in your life, times in my life, that we glory in the trials if God gives us a glimpse in that moment of what he's doing. But so many times we're, we're pushing it back. We're saying, why me? We turn it inward and say, God, why are you letting me go through this? We find that Paul says we also glory in tribulations, knowing that the tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Listen to what Peter says, 1 Peter 5.10. He spoke of maturity and trials. He says, after you have suffered a little while, <laughs> sometimes you're like, God, your idea of a little while and mine are two different things. After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Who's going to do the work? Him. The God of all glory is the one doing the work. When we try to do it ourselves and say, well, I need to perfect myself. I need to strengthen myself. I need to establish myself. That is us trying to do in our strength what God alone can do in our life. Peter, as well as Paul, almost imply, almost imply this automatic process whereby trials end in maturity. Oh, but listen to what James does. He stops the process and he gives a command he said let endurance have its perfect result there is a willingness to submit to the process there is a submissive cooperation with the spirit's activity in our lives in that moment what happens when a person continues to bail out of the process and run from the process and reject the process and refuse to see what God is wanting to do what happens in that situation here it is the longer we resist and the longer we run and the longer we refuse to see things from God's perspective the longer we stay spiritually immature and listen 
And sometimes the longer you stay in the trial. I know as New Testament believers, we don't spend quite as much time in the Old Testament. But if you look at what God did with the children of Israel in the wilderness for 40 years, you watch this cycle. They're faithful, they're depending, they're pursuing, and all of a sudden they fail and they sin and they rebel. And all of a sudden God takes them through some tests and then they're faithful and they're pursuing and they're obedient and then they get too big for their britches and they fall again and they keep going. Back when I was playing sports, here's what our coach would say. You guys take another lap. It's kind of like you keep messing up, you get you another lap around the football field. It's almost like God was saying to them for 40 years, take another lap. Just run it out. Just keep, keep, keep going. See, sometimes, here's the thing. People say, if I could just get out of this circumstance, if I could move to another city, if I could get this other job over here, then that would be behind me. Here's the problem. As long as you go... You're still there. And when you've moved six other times and the problems keep following you, it might be with you. That wasn't in my notes. That's free. So the word perfect here, it means to be fully developed. It does not imply a moral or spiritual perfection. It's not the same as being sinless. It's a word that is used of maturity. A second word that he talks about with this maturing process is complete. It speaks of something that has all of its parts, therefore it is whole. Listen to this. Trials, we've already found, will transition us from a head knowledge to experiential knowledge. There is a wholeness in that. Trials prove the genuineness of our faith. It shows the boundaries of our faith and the depths of our faith and the limitations of our faith. We get a chance to look at our faith from multiple angles. There is a wholeness that is a part of that. Trials text our values and they show our motivations. They reveal character issues inside of us. There is a wholeness that happens with that. The, the last part of the phrase is so that you are lacking in nothing. It reinforces the comprehensiveness of the point. The end result of the trials, the problems, the tribulations, the temptations, the proving, the testing, the end result is that it leads to maturity and completeness, where we have strength of character lacking in nothing. So go back to the phrase, let endurance or patience have its perfect result. In a very general sense, impatience and unbelief are signs of immaturity. Patience and faith are signs of maturity. In fact, if you want a Bible verse to put off to the side, put Hebrews 6.12. It says, be followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Inherit the promises. Your Bible is filled with promises to God's people. Those who are people of faith, those who are people of patience, they inherit the promises, they live the promises. Why is it important for God's people to develop patience or endurance? Here it is. It is essential to receiving the blessings of God. 
A child who doesn't learn patience will struggle to learn much of anything else. They grow frustrated and restless and angry when they don't get what they want when they want it. The same is true of believers. Abraham did not wait on God. He slept with Hagar, and it brought pain to the world, not only his family, but to the world since that time, Genesis 16. Moses got ahead of God's plan. He murdered a man, and then he spent the next 40 years learning patience while tending sheep, Exodus 2. Peter was a guy with incredible zeal, but he was also impatient. He cut off a man's ear in the garden while trying to defend Christ and usher in the kingdom himself, John chapter 18. Impatience could be one of the greatest obstacles for true spiritual growth. But listen, when believers learn to wait on the Lord, it opens them up to a world of possibilities with God. We will never become patient trying to be patient. Patience is learned in trials. We will never be perfect trying to perfect ourselves. Perfection comes to the patience that is learned in the trials. In other words, we don't like it, we might not want it, but we absolutely need God to let us go through trials. It is his route for spiritual maturity. So as believers, one of the greatest things that you and I can ever do is get out of God's way and let the Holy Spirit do his work. Now please hear me. That does not mean you do nothing. Sometimes people say, well, I'm just getting out of God's way, so I'm not going to go to church. I'm not going to read my Bible. I'm not going not to talk to other believers. I'm not going to fellowship with other believers. No, that's called being a hermit. Okay, that's isolation right there. That's, that's not getting out of the way. It means what we're doing is we stop trying to solve it ourselves, and we say, God, you've got it. I don't. I'm tired. I'm worn out in this thing. I'm going to submit to you, God, even if you don't solve my problem today, may I get to know you more just being in your word? Here's what you'll notice. God begins to take your eyes off of the problem and place it back on himself. And when our eyes are locked on him, and he is our goal, he is our pursuit, he is our passion, he is our love, then listen, go back to our phrase, everything God desires to do in and through your life, he will accomplish out of the overflow of our relationship with him. It all comes back to intimacy with God. Now, as simple as we can make it, trials build character. Trials build character. Whenever I was a kid, my dad had one phrase for every scratched knee, every cut finger, every broken bone, every unsolicited chore that I did not want to have around the house. His phrase was what your parents told you. It builds character. I could fall off of my bike, skim both my knees, tell my dad, and he'd say, it's all right, builds character. I could slam my finger in a car door, and he would say, are you going to do it again? No. Good, you learned something. It built character. <laughs> there wasn't a lot of mercy in my house. 
but there was a lot of character development that was happening. In fact, so many times that I received that phrase, I should be a character ninja at this point. It seems as though James would agree with that parental advice. Our tests of our faith are going to produce endurance. And in endurance, we are left with a perfect result, that we are perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Trials build character. You might hate the trial. You might not want the trial. You might be running from the trial. That trial might be draining you of everything in your body right now. But God is using that trial in ways that no other set of circumstances could bring the same results about. I've shared this story before. It's in my first book that I wrote, but it's one that I feel like is so specific for this one point. It's a story of whenever we had started the church in Las Vegas. And we arrived in Vegas in 2003. I met with the director of missions and he shared some statistics with me that were startling to say the least. Vegas is 94% unchurched. A church that it actually makes it, there's a 90% mortality rate of church plants. 90% will not make it to year number five. Of those that make it to year number five, the 10% that are there, that church is considered strong and healthy if there's 50 people in attendance after five years. Whenever we heard those statistics, we knew God had to do something big. We spent 14 months preparing a core group and preparing the field, sowing seed, inviting people. We, we did everything that church marketing experts and everything seminary professors told you you needed to do. We prayer walked through the help of mission teams, 120,000 homes on our side of town. We did multiple block parties serving the community. We mailed out 150,000 mailer invites, inviting people to come. We had 150 road signs around our side of town. We handed out over 30,000 personal invite cards and served breakfast to thousands of motorists and inviting them to come to church. We sent an email invite to over 1 million email addresses, inviting people to come for the public launch of this new church that was going to happen in Las Vegas. From what all of the church growth experts and marketing experts told us would happen, we should expect between five to 700 people in addition to what we had on that first day. So that first day came, October the 3rd, 2004. We had seating for that many people. We had childcare for that many people. We had donuts and coffee for that many people. And up until this point, there was about 85 people who were part of our core group. There were another 15 who showed up that day from the association and other churches to say, we support you and we're excited. That's 100 people. So guess how many people showed up on that morning? 106 people. Six more people showed up after 14 months of prayer and preparation. Not five to seven hundred, six. I could not preach fast enough or get off the stage fast enough. I was mad. I was mad with God. I was mad with the church planting experts. I was mad that I shared with our core group what the church planting experts told me. I was mad. 
I was fuming. I could not believe. I felt foolish. I was thinking, how in the world do I go back next week and try to encourage people right after we had what I could only see as a complete failure, a flop. Six people, not five to seven hundred, six people. And on my way driving home, all of a sudden it hit me. All of these other churches and pastors who had invested said, call us after the launch and let us know what God did. And I was like, hmm. I'm like, if I tell them what's in my heart, they're going to send me to counseling. They're going to wonder whether or not I'm a believer. So here, here's what you learn to do when you're in church planting life. You spend statistics. I came with two things I thought could be encouraging. Here's what I said. We had more people than we ever had. <laughs> we did six more. More people than we ever had. And I said, and I'm glad the launch is over so that we can focus on ministry. That's the only two positive pieces I could think about. So I called and I left that message on voicemail after voicemail. And then one person picked up. And it's somebody I've known a long time. And I gave them my two pieces and the person said, so what really happened? <clears throat> and I unloaded. I told him everything. I told him how mad I was. I told him how offended. I felt like God dropped us on our head. And here's what the person said. This morning in church, the pastor was talking about Joseph. And the time God gave Joseph the dream to the time it came to fruition was 13 years. And he asked the question, what would you do today if you knew for sure God was with you? He said, Paul, I don't know if that'll help, but that's what I got. I said, I appreciate you trying, but I am not Joseph. I don't have 13 years. It's the worst advice I've ever received in my life. You know when you're hurting, you don't want somebody to bring you a Bible verse that makes sense. You're like, I want somebody to commiserate in my pain. So I went in my prayer closet and I got on my knees. I just said, God, if I continue to talk what's in my heart, I'm going to do nothing but dishonor you. And God, in my mind, I know you've not let me down. But in my heart, I feel like I got dropped on my head. So God, what are you doing? Is there anything you're trying to teach me? And in the next 30 minutes, he listed 39 parts of my character he was addressing. He said, I'm going to break your attraction to numbers. I'm going to teach you the importance of persistence. I'm going to show you it is not about you. I'm going to break your pride in the process. I'm going to teach you the value of teamwork. I'm going to teach you you have to depend on me. 39 parts of my character. He listed out, and I looked at the list, and here's the next words I wrote. God, if I knew there were 39 issues with my character, I would not have given me 106 people. But I need to know I've not messed up so bad you can't use me. Is there a passage that you would lead me to? And as clear as could be, Psalm 105, 17. I turned over there and here's what it said. And then he sent one ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. <laughs> and until the time came for God to fulfill his word, 
God tested Joseph's character. An hour later, a church from another state called to see if I would be the pastor of that church. Had God not met me in prayer, pointing out character issues in my life, I would have bailed on launch day. Only God knows the circumstances divinely positioned to bring to the surface issues of your life you would have never been willing to address otherwise. And when he brings it up, you know it's him. And when he brings it up, you can't run from it anymore. The circumstances you're walking through are divinely orchestrated. By God. Might not be that he set them up in a way in which there's sin, there's problems, but God uses those. If he's allowed them, he's using them. So here's your response. Four questions we close. List several of the trials or problems you're experiencing today. I want to encourage you, list them, write them out. Ask God, what are you teaching me or developing in me through the trial? There's something he's bringing out in this moment. How has your attitude been so far? What does God want your attitude to be? And then finally, will you let endurance have its perfect result? When the trials, the problems came, the issues came, did pride come up or humility come out? Did submission come to the surface or anger seethe through every pore of your being? Did you release it back to your heavenly father? Or did you stand in defiance and say, you don't have the right to do that in my life? Only God can orchestrate the circumstances. Where's he working in your heart today? Don't run from the trials. There is purpose in the pain. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, Lord, we recognize that everyone has things that you are working on and developing and pushing out of our lives. There's areas that are not pleasing to you. There's areas that are still remnants of the flesh. And God, we pray today that we don't run from the process, that we recognize that you are a loving father and that God, you are using every single bit of it in order to accomplish your perfect plan. God, we, if we don't believe that you are using it, then somehow we cannot believe what Scripture says, that you work all things together for good. God, that is either true or it's not. Lord, we, we hold on to the fact it is true. Every part of your word is true. But God, you alone know exactly how to take the words from Scripture and apply it to the heart of those that are here. So God, I pray that for those who are about to give up hope, those who are weary in their trials, oh God, may we see there just be a submissive cooperation with your spirit in the moment. God, live through us what those circumstances are intended to do. And God will be grateful for that in Jesus' name, amen. I'm gonna ask you to stand. Our pastors and some of the pastor's wives will be down at the front. There'll be counselors at the front. Our invitation time is open. You might just need a time of prayer. There might be this morning 
that God has revealed to you, you've been pushing away the very thing he's been intending for your good. It might be that you need somebody to pray with. might be today that you don't know where you stand before God and the circumstances are drawing that out. I want to encourage you today, respond as the Spirit of God prompts you.